Hello everyone, Erin Worsham here from Duke University's Center for the Advancement of Social Entrepreneurship. And I'm also your host for Case in Point, the podcast that interviews impact leaders about critical trends driving social change. I'm excited for today's episode of Case in Point because we are going to talk about impact investing, the practice of investing for social or environmental impact as well as financial return. Our team at Case cares deeply about impact investing. We launched our own Case Initiative on Impact Investing, or Case I3, nearly 10 years ago. And in that time, we've been training MBA students to become impact investing leaders and have been creating tools such as Case Smart Impact Capital, our online toolkit that helps entrepreneurs raise impact investment capital. So we see impact investing as a critical lever to solving social problems. And we are certainly not the only ones. Impact investing continues to gain momentum. In 2019, the Global Impact Investing Network, or GIN, estimated that the size of the impact investing market is $502 billion. And as impact investing continues to gain momentum, it is also becoming more mainstream with nearly all major asset management firms launching impact strategies. And so on this episode of Case in Point, we wanted to talk more about this mainstreaming of impact investing, what the opportunities and risks are, what is currently being done, and what the future holds. So to do that, earlier this year, we invited Omid Satay to join us on Case in Point. Omid is Vice President of Impact Investments at Prudential Financial, where he oversees an impact investing portfolio of $1 billion. Before joining Prudential, Omid was Director of Real Estate Development for the New Orleans Redevelopment Authority, and prior to that had been a real estate and land use attorney in New York City. He also serves on many boards, including B-Lab, the Nonprofit Finance Fund, and our very own Case I3 Advisory Council. We are delighted that Omid took the time to join us on Case in Point, to share his insights on the mainstreaming of impact investing, and to provide some practical advice for those looking to learn more. Let's jump in. Omid, thank you so much for being with us here on campus today. We're excited to welcome you here. Yes, my pleasure to be here. It's, it's so great to be here. Great. Well, I, I heard that you haven't been on campus in, in quite a while uh, from the days of, of visiting campuses for college tours. Is <laughs> that's, that right? That's right. So. Things have changed here at Duke and Durham, so hopefully we'll have a chance to, to bring you on a tour and show you some of the campus. I hope so. I mean, if I have as much fun on this tour as I did on my last one. So. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you questions <laughs> about what happened the last time around. <laughs> uh, we are excited to have you here to talk a little bit more about the work that you're doing at Prudential and generally about where we see the, the field of, of impact investing going. So I would love to just dive in and start to as, ask some questions with a little bit of the context setting for our conversation. So I want to start with the basics. Tell us, tell me, tell the audience how you define impact investing. Sure. So I think for me, the, the touchstone of impact investing is you actually start with the impact as opposed to the investing. Mm -hmm. So you know most people, and if they work in the financial services industry, have some asset or some product or something they're selling. I'd say what's different about sort of impact investing is you start with the impact. You start with a thesis about what is broken and needs to be fixed. And it can be a thesis about doing more around vaccine development. It can be community development. It can be a whole range of things. But there's actually, that's the starting point. And then the investing component is to figure out how do you drive capital, 
uh, into things that solve whatever you've identified as the, the social problem. Uh, and that sounds sort of straightforward and relatively simple, but it isn't actually how most people in financial services mm -hmm. or in corporate America actually think about social problems. Mm -hmm. uh, and I actually think that's sort of what makes it special. And as we think about the term, I think having a term that reflects that sort of bottoms up or impact driven starting point is really crucial. Mm -hmm. I, I love that answer of, of, like you said, starting with impact first and driving from there. We'll talk a little bit later on in the conversation around some of the, the criticisms of impact yeah. investing and the idea of impact washing sure. and I because I think so often as as we get larger financial institutions involved in impact investing we lose that focus on impact yep. first impact sort of becomes second yep. um, and so we'll come back to that but I love that sure. that's our starting point um, before we dig into that though I would love to hear a little bit more about your your own personal journey what, yeah. what got you interested in impact investing sure so for me I think the the experience of being essentially sort of a borrower it's like the old hair club for men ads where mm -hmm. I was first a borrower before I was an investor <laughs> Uh, I was down in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina and working for the city's redevelopment authority and trying to bring in capital uh, to assist on the rebuilding. And as you can imagine, it was sort of an unprecedented social challenge. And what was so difficult was that we had really credible, compelling investment opportunities. And even with all of the aspirations of the philanthropic, the government, even private sector, how hard it was to actually get projects financed. Uh, and it, you know, that's how I got to know the Prudential team. They were one of the better folks that we mm. worked with. Uh, they invested in a few really difficult projects we were trying to get off the ground. And I saw firsthand, actually, how much, when people are working in challenging circumstances, you need capital that has flexibility and creativity and is willing to look at why conventional tools won't work to solve the problem. Uh, as an example, when I was in New Orleans, one of the things that had happened was that the, after the hurricanes, the, the appraised value of properties plummeted. So no appraisal for any real estate project in the city could come back, and yet you destroyed a third of the housing stock, and so rents had never been higher. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was completely confounding to most sort of lenders. How do I make a loan when the LTV is through the roof? And it's very hard to actually tell someone to just ignore it. It doesn't make any sense. Mm. But having people who will actually look at problems and think about problems is a is a rare sort of animal and a necessary animal. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's sort of how I came to the field. Mm. It's a, a great origin story. And I, and I love that you had the chance to sort of check Prudential out uh, <laughs> from a different lens and, and see that they were mm -hmm. approaching it in an authentic and right. impact-driven way, as you were just talking about, before you jumped in to, yeah. to work with them. Um, <clears throat> and so since then, and, and over the, the last 10 years or so, we've seen just an incredible growth in the field of impact investing. I think the last GIN report was citing about $502 billion uh, is uh, in assets managed globally for impact. So incredible growth of the field. Yeah. From your vantage point, what do you think is driving that? Well, I think you know we've never had more difficult and pressing social challenges, whether it's mm -hmm. in terms of the growing sort of, well, I shouldn't we never had, we've probably always had lots of social challenges. But there's obviously been an incredible surge in inequality, uh, all sorts of climatic challenges that we're facing, uh, a general sense, I think, culturally, that we are expecting and asking different things of capitalism, fundamentally. And mm -hmm. if you look at our current election and what sort of policies are now being talked about in both parties, uh, the window of what people are asking has really changed. And so we are, I think, in a moment where uh, we know we need to do things differently. Mm -hmm. I also think 
because there's been such a sense that government is paralyzed, people are looking to financial services, to corporations, to step into that breach. Uh, and I think that's also driving a lot of sort of the, the demand and pressure from both, whether it's consumers or investors to try to do something differently. Uh, and then I do think, as you see, sort of the generation change and wealth being inherited and the transfer mm -hmm. and sort of the values that go along with that, uh, that's also driving some of what's what you're seeing. Mm -hmm. I also want to be somewhat skeptical of all of the, the 500 billion, trillion, whatever numbers people want to put out there, because in a lot of cases, I think what you're measuring or seeing there is actually just sort of people measuring the fact that capitalism is vast and big and has always done some things that are actually beneficial. Mm -hmm. Whether it's building you know, highways or schools or municipal bonds, there's a lot of stuff that actually capital markets get correctly, mm -hmm. um, and some of which has, has real impact and has mm -hmm. always had it. I think the intentionality the, wasn't necessarily there, though, is what you're saying. The now we're sort of categorizing it under a new bucket. Yeah, I mean, the intentionality wasn't there, although I, I would even say I think people are missing, in, in my eyes, sort of what's special, which is this real question of, are you solving problems that weren't already being solved, mm -hmm. or are you taking credit for investing in, in solutions that already existed? And I think that's a much harder question for people to wrap their heads around. But I think if you, that latter category of stuff that's sort of differentiated from the mainstream is nowhere near 500 billion. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it needs to be. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's, there's a notion, I think, that people confuse scale with flexibility. Mm. When it comes to solving problems, you know, flexibility matters a lot more. Mm -hmm. If you look at U.S. venture capital, U.S. venture capital has obviously done probably more than any sector of financial services to radically transform society. Mm -hmm. But it's still a tiny fraction of the capital market. Right. And so I think that, that insight, I think, is really important, that impact, and I mean this sort of in change, the sense of change, isn't necessarily a function of scale or scale alone. It's mm -hmm. where you sort of invest, how you invest, and sort of going in at critical moments. Mm -hmm. More in my eyes than it has to be about scale. Mm -hmm. So finding those critical leverage points, yeah. bringing in that creative and flexible capital at the right time yeah. to, to change an industry, right. to change a problem. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I, you know, the, the, the simplistic way to sort of think of this is I think we have lots of levers and not enough fulcrums. Mm. Okay. That's a great quote. It's interesting reflecting on you talking about flexibility and creative capital. And my bias is to say, incredibly large financial institution that you work at, Prudential, 1.5 trillion assets under management, is that right? Yeah. Um, so huge financial institution that often I wouldn't necessarily equate with creative, flexible capital. Yet, I know that in the impact investing work that you're doing there, you're, you're having an incredible impact and, and doing great things. So let's dive in a little bit on Prudential yeah. and, and tell our audience more about the work that you're doing there. For those that don't know, let's start at the beginning. Tell me more about what the impact investing group that you lead is is doing and, and what the commitment is that you've made. Sure. So uh, a few years ago, actually probably about five, six years ago, the company committed to build what I think at the time was the first sort of ever billion dollar impact investing program. Mm -hmm. um, and within sort of a few weeks, we'll be crossing that milestone. And that's a billion dollars, not just that we've invested, but it's a portfolio that lives and stays at that size. And so uh, it's a meaningful and serious commitment. Uh, but again, going back to what I said before, I don't know that just measuring the overall size of the dollar says as much as really getting into the heart of sort of the, the integrity with which we've tried to deploy that into fundamentally things that we weren't doing with our $1.5 in assets. And so from the get-go, there was a notion that this should be 
entirely about things that we weren't able to get to. And I think that was really mm -hmm. core to the mission. So this concept of additionality that exactly. we often talk about in the impact investing space. Exactly. Okay. And in some ways, our bar on additionality was a little bit lower than some others because mm -hmm. of what you said about it being a relatively traditional investor. Yeah. When you're a $1.5 trillion investor, you are, in, by definition, in large traditional sectors. Mm -hmm. And so we actually had probably more room than maybe if you were sort of doing this at a more kind of privately focused kind of company where maybe that bar would have had to be higher. Mm -hmm. But for us, we did from the get-go, and we've tried to sort of stay to that North Star. And it's hard, mm -hmm. because actually the bigger we get, the more successful our returns in some cases are, the more people want to think about it through the conventional frameworks that we apply to the $1.5 And Is that a measure of success, though? Uh, that, that the work you're investing yeah. in through your impact investing unit is being seen as not only great investment from an impact perspective, right. but also from a financial. I don't know that it's a measure of success, as much as just that as things get bigger, you start to sort of ex understand a little bit better why traditional capital sources sometimes have trouble going into smaller, earlier stage, mm. fundamentally quirky opportunities. Mm -hmm. That instead of sort of being able to describe each individual transaction and describe it on its merits, you're left with a whole bunch of sort of subscale, complex, hard to explain things. And then you're going through risk processes that were designed to look at very large, standardized things. And I think that actually, as I've sort of gotten deeper and started to reflect more, is a real tension um, you see in the field. Mm. And sometimes it's sort of why you see this ebb and flow dynamic where people come in and they come back out. And that there's this sort of push and pull tension between people start with sort of a desire to be sort of creative and highly additional, get big, and start to sort of get risk managed. Mm. Um, and that's, I think, just a real tension as the field starts to see more portfolios at scale. Interesting. So you can see that even within a large institution like Prudential, oh, you're, yeah. you're kind of off on the side doing doing work. People aren't really paying attention. But as it starts to have success and get bigger, you start to face some of the tensions of the processes and yeah. policies. And the, and the thing that's been, I think, striking for me is that performance, and the performance has been really strong both from an impact and a financial mm -hmm. perspective, doesn't make people less nervous. Mm. <laughs> the bigger you get, the more people just get nervous because you're bigger. Yeah. And that nervousness leads, I think, people to sort of ask and want to have to sort of go back to doing things the way they've done things before. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's that, that tension is really, I think, a, a, an underappreciated dynamic in the how, financial How do you services. fight against that tension? It's, it is really hard because I think so many people in a large organization just see a very small piece of the puzzle and want it done like every other piece that look like that. Mm -hmm. That part of how scaled organizations get scaled is by building really big hammers and trying to hammer really big nails. Um, and it is, I think, just a real everyday battle. I mean, more than anything, I think that's something that we culturally and practically are always thinking about. How do we sort of get people to think about this at an enterprise view? Mm. Part of you know our origin story and how I think we were able to get this initial mandate was that we, we went directly to the board. And at a board level, at an enterprise level, their question was always, why aren't we doing more of it, right? It's the question sort of I think most of us have as lay people is like, why aren't we getting more of this? Mm -hmm. And at an enterprise level, the, the risk, the trade-offs, the approach all made tremendous sense. But to, at any large organization, to all the people one step below, one step below, one step below, who aren't really asked to think at an enterprise level, um, that can be where these things get stuck. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and so one of the, the great sort of the, the reason, ultimately, I think we've been able to do what we've done has been because we had that deep uh, senior management and board support. Mm-hmm. So what's the advice that you would give to another leader or someone entering a, another large financial institution where they see maybe there's this opportunity, yeah. maybe there's some interest. How, do, how do, is it go straight to the board and, and you know what's the case you need to make there? What's, what's the advice you would give to somebody to help seed that conversation and that work? I actually think, I mean, obviously that feels a little bit flipped to say that, but mm-hmm. I actually don't think it's wrong. Mm-hmm. I think making a bigger case to a higher level is better than an incremental case and working organically. Mm-hmm. That what a lot of us feel, which is that this is so innately obvious and that we need more of it, is not the wrong intuition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that it's equally true, though, that there's all sorts of systemic restrictions, barriers, impediments that are going to make it very difficult for people to get to sort of something that feels innately right. Yeah. Uh, and the higher you're able to get and the more you're able to get folks who can sort of value the multiplicity of benefits. So. You know, when we do this work, we've seen great you know, communications and PR values, you might expect. We've seen incredible social impact. But we've also actually, as a company, gotten great insights into business models and approaches to solving really difficult social problems. But often those can also become insights into market strategy or how to mm-hmm. think about emerging markets differently, mm-hmm. partners in places we wouldn't have thought to find them. And so there's a lot of... There's, a, there's so many synergies different synergies with, with and values, of, mm-hmm. but it's about, I think, getting to a level where you can be given credit for capturing those. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, as I think about the field, I think one of the interesting kind of trends for the future is whether more corporates, so non-sort of classically financial services companies, but corporates that are sitting on assets mm-hmm. of unimaginable scale mm-hmm. can get there. Because actually, I think at that level, it makes even more sense. The... They're used to, I think, even within some of their current CSR activities, thinking about these multiplicity of drivers. They've got an ability, I think, to get credit from it from a consumer landscape. Mm-hmm. And many of them, you know, are, I mean, take Apple or somebody else, are sitting on such enormous piles of cash right. uh, that actually they're in a position to think much more creatively. Mm-hmm. It's a fascinating future to think about, yeah. to, to have the not just the financial institutions, right. but all corporations thinking about the, the money that they're sitting on and how that could be invested for for impact and and return, depending on their uh, financial returns as well. Um, let me come back to a couple of yeah. points that you made. You, you talked a little bit about, um, you know, it's, uh, of course, not been smooth sailing, I'm sure, yeah. the whole you know, the advice to go to the board and the most senior yeah. management. There's always going to be questions. There's always going to be barriers to overcome. Can you talk to us a little bit about some of the biggest barriers that had to be overcome to get to where you are now at Prudential? Um, and how you, what your advice is to others about how to overcome those barriers? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that we were able to get that I think was also really important was a little bit of running room to mm-hmm. make mistakes. Mm-hmm. That that everyone sort of aspires to be an agile corporation. Everyone talks about wanting to be agile, yep. but actually building enough enough time and enough flexibility into sort of the the strategy to sort of have everyone openly acknowledge that we're going to try something, and then we're going to learn. And that's really, really hard when you're trying to actually do something that's sort of outside the box. But that was really crucial. I mean, if I look back at sort of where we started to sort of how we think of the work now and how, how many things we did that in the early days might have been a little bit off. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we kept them small. And, and I think that was something that was pretty important was that we got by and to be able to have that approach. Mm-hmm. And, and that, I think, was really, really important. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I think another thing that was important was finding a way to personalize the work. Mm. Um, financial services is at its core, I mean, thousands of abstractions and perhaps interesting to those of us in the industry, but not really something that pulls and tugs on heartstrings. Right. And so always trying to find a way to, to rehumanize the work. Mm-hmm. Um, so part of, I think, why Prudential did what it did was that being based in Newark, it's a community that's obviously struggled with you know, economic injustice, social injustice, turmoil, and having that be part of people's lived reality and seeing both the sort of negative consequences and positive change right in their backyard mm-hmm. was a huge motivator. Mm-hmm. It's also why I think actually you know, some of the corporates and some of the people who've done the most interesting stuff here um, have had a similar sort of sense of being rooted in some place that's actually seen the consequences of when capitalism gets it wrong. Mm. That's powerful to think about the the local examples, investing in, in yeah. local communities and opportunities to be able to see that and feel it, yeah. feel the, the impact more more intently. I love love this conversation so far, Omid. And uh, you know, I think what would be really helpful is if our audience could hear a couple of tangible examples of the types of investments that you've made through the impact investing work at Prudential. Um, and, and I know that you're investing, and you can talk more about this across a wide spectrum of expected sure. returns. So, would love for you to give examples, maybe two examples, one on on uh, you know the ends of the spectrum in terms of yeah. your your returns expectations. Sure. So, I think as you said, yeah, we have always sort of set this up. I think with some latitude to do things in sort of what we would think of as a catalytic manner. And that's really bets that we make on what are fundamentally untested ideas, but that have enormous social impact potential. Um, And realistically, that portfolio takes a lot of risk, probably on a risk-adjusted basis, is not going to generate the same kind of returns that are more um, more sort of established portfolios do. But the insights and the knowledge that come from that actually serve us incredibly well in the the larger corpus. Mm -hmm. Um, And so maybe an example of that. We, we did a project with um, some colleagues uh, in Washington, D.C. to help set up a stormwater trading exchange. And the basic idea was similar to what people have been trying to do with carbon cap and trade. Mm-hmm. And Washington, D.C., sort of at a municipal level, passed some much stricter regulations around how much stormwater had to be retained, uh, which made sort of developers who are building in the district have to either... Um, change what they were building in ways that would have been pretty expensive, Mm -hmm. or to purchase credits generated from making green infrastructure improvements somewhere else in the district. And so it actually created a huge incentive, in theory, for that to happen. But nobody had actually funded the first green infrastructure project to generate the first batch of credits, Mm -hmm. in part because it was... So on paper, it sounded really good, but it wasn't actually happening. It wasn't going to happen. And it was very hard for anybody to invest because nobody knew what price those credits would trade at. Mm, Okay. So how do you create a trading... Uh, market without any supply, and how does someone fund the creation of supply without knowing what the price is going to be? And so that was a really great example, I think, of something that we did in our catalytic portfolio where somebody had to sort of create the initial trade. Somebody had to be the first mover. Once that trade priced, it became much simpler, including for ourselves, to put a lot more capital into the production of those credits. And as the supply of credits became available, it became much more plausible for developers to sort of say, hey, I'll fill my obligations with credits rather than making building changes. Mm -hmm. Um, And beneath that, we had our partners who are working both at the regulatory level and the policy level to help get this architecture right in DC, but then also help sort of communicate how you can use market-based concepts to to solve environmental problems at the local level. Mm -hmm. So that was the other thing that we liked about it was that it was both catalytic at a transactional level, but catalytic at a policy level. It was something that could actually be replicated, be taken 
take into other jurisdictions um, and go forward. I love that. So really thinking beyond the actual investment. This investment was a good investment for impact and, re and return yep. potentially, but also could create an ecosystem right. that could uh, that could have ripple effects far yep. beyond that. It's a great example. Yeah. And then um, I think in the more conventional side, we one of our partners has been UNICEF. And UNICEF obviously is as sort of well-known and established an mm -hmm. entity. Uh, but I actually wasn't aware of just how enormous their role is in the global delivery of vaccines. I think they basically deliver more than half the world's vaccines mm -hmm. and run an unimaginably sophisticated supply, supply chain. chain right. And yet, under the UN charter, because they're a UN agency, they're not allowed to borrow money. And so they're running one of the world's most critical supply chains with no working capital. And it's a supply chain that after disasters has to ramp up and ramp down. Its donors are highly credible, but not necessarily known for the timeliness and paying. And when it comes to things like vaccinating, you really need to get it there on time. Right. And so they were really starting to be constrained by the absence of adequate kind of working capital. And so we designed essentially something that could simultaneously comply with their regulatory restrictions, behave and function and be priced like working capital. Um, and, and we're able to sort of create a, a template with them for that. Um, and so I think that's a good example of something that we kind of did in our more conventional portfolio. It wasn't so much about the the risk, I think the risk is incredibly low. It's clearly a phenomenal organization, right. but it was about the work mm -hmm. to understand and structure right. in light of lots of complex on-the-ground well, conditions. And that was one of the things I was going to reflect on. I think often larger financial institutions uh, talk about the risk, but but I think a big barrier also is just the, the expertise and knowledge that needs to go into understanding these markets, understanding these incredibly complex environmental challenges with the stormwater right. drainage, et cetera, or supply chains, last mile supply chains yep. around the world for vaccines, um, incredibly challenging uh, problems and context to understand. And so there must be, there must be a, a huge hurdle to overcome for, for your work and a barrier others must face uh, in this work. Yeah. I mean, that's the funny thing. So we, we said right from the, I mean, many years in, we sort of said, we're not subsidizing returns, we're subsidizing brain damage. Mm -hmm. And that is <laughs> absolutely the case, right? There is more effort and complexity per dollar invested here than there would be anywhere else. And that's kind of the point, that actually that's a lot of why these things don't get done conventionally, right. is that if somebody had to basically dedicate the kind of man and woman power we did to sort of understand and figure out this transaction, they'd say there's just easier ways to make money. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and it really speaks to how deeply you're thinking about impact and making the investment in learning about ecosystems and learning about uh, context to yeah. get to that impact. So I'd, uh, you know, interested to talk a little bit more about that because yeah. I think this is one of the one of the biggest criticisms we we hear as we're talking about the mainstreaming of impact investing. As larger and larger financial institutions are coming into the space and investing for impact, right. are they truly investing for impact, or is it more impact washing in in many cases? Yeah. Um, so I, my question for you is to have you reflect on that as yeah. uh, through your work at Prudential. How do you define impact, and and tactically, how do you make sure that you are truly authentically having impact in your investments. Uh, what can others learn from you? Yeah. So it's interesting. On this, on this question of impact washing, I think you know, really what that tension, I think, speaks to is that it, there's a supply of interesting investable opportunities today. Renewable energy would be a great example. You can actually find lots of credible ways to invest in renewable energy today in relatively conventional ways. 
that bucket is where naturally a lot of the people sort of bringing in capital, wanting to talk about impact investing are going because it's the bucket that exists. Um, I think the more interesting and the more compelling and the need that people feel but don't know how to articulate is how do we get new solutions that make that bucket bigger? And there's no easy way really to describe that other than to describe this with examples um, that actually, but this is sort of what people want, and yet this is sort of what financial services can deliver. And there is that mismatch. I don't necessarily think it's venal or something like, with you know, washing sort of implies it's being done out of malice or to sort of cover up. I think it's actually people are being quite thoughtful about selecting things from what exists on the menu. Mm-hmm. But it's still what exists is on the menu, and it would have existed with or without right. people wanting this. Whereas the stuff that we try to do, ideally, is stuff that was never on the menu in the first place. Where all the brain damage is being incurred. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think the, the thing that's also, I think, troubling is that I'm not sure that you, know, you need $500 billion of brain damage. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's a place in the ecosystem for both mm-hmm. forms of capital. And I think the thing that hasn't happened is, can you harness the demand from the 500 billion for things on the menu to pay for the cooks. Mm. Um, mm. And that's that linkage is, is, I think, the thing that's not happening today. Yeah. As we look to the future, do you see that linkage happening? Are you optimistic about, about that potential of impact investing coming to fruition? I'm uncertain. I, you know, I think I might have been more optimistic when I started that that linkage would be able to be more organic. I think there is such a inertial pull in the financial services industry and then the technology industry to concentrated scale mm-hmm. that every time there's a bank merger, every time that somebody crosses a trillion dollars in assets, it just means that what they have to invest in their minimum check size gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And you're seeing this, I think, throughout the kind of financial services and the asset management industry as a sort of consolidation and concentration. Mm -hmm. And I think that tendency is really pulling against all the reasons one might have to be optimistic in terms of sort of what clients want. Mm -hmm. And for clients, as much as they want impact, they still, at least if you look at their sort of behavior, want to cut checks to try to intrude names, typically the biggest check possible to the biggest name. Um, and that's the crux of the tension. Mm-hmm. Um, once something gets big enough, I have no question that those opportunities will start to be served by traditional capital. Mm-hmm. So I'm bullish on something like utility-scale renewable energy. And I think the capital markets will be able to solve something like that. That really works for their model. They're relatively straightforward. Each one of those transactions looks and feels the same, and that starts to happen. Um, but I'm not sure, actually, that we're being honest enough about how hard it is for all of those sort of entrenched biases and and kind of mainstream capital to be addressed in a way that would allow it to flow to where it's not flowing. And so whether those are biases over race, of community, and scale more than anything, um, I don't know if we're going to do enough there. Mm -hmm. End us on a a positive note. what's What's your hope for the future of impact investing? I think for you know part of why it's so enjoyable to come to, to a place like Duke and be with students is that you cannot be pessimistic about the the human dimension here. Mm-hmm. I mean, the people who work on my team, the people I meet in this field, the people we invest with, are really doing this. I think with an unbelievable level of conviction, 
and that's powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not a lot of people, I think, in the financial services industry who ultimately like most of the people on both sides. <laughs> um, and I, I actually find most of the people we invest with to be incredibly compelling at a human level. Mm-hmm. And so I do think that human dynamic is, is what makes me really optimistic. That was a really fun conversation with Omid. And I have found it so interesting that even though this interview took place before COVID-19, Omid gave the great example about Prudential creating a unique investment mechanism for UNICEF to help them continue to deliver life-saving vaccines. It's such a clear and timely example of the power of capital to achieve real impact when focused on creative, impact-driven solutions. Of course, there are many obstacles still to overcome, as Omid mentioned. Overcoming entrenched biases in mainstream capital, mitigating real or perceived risks, and the tendency towards larger, more established deals. But despite all of that, I love that we ended our conversation on such an optimistic note, focused on the conviction and the passion that Omid is seeing in the people that are driving the field of impact investing. It is especially inspiring to keep that in mind, given the current global pandemic. Because despite there being so much uncertainty and so many challenges, there are also so many people like Omid and like our other partners, our many students and alumni that remain dedicated to doing this important work to make the world a better place. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Case in Point. We look forward to seeing you next time. And in the meantime, don't forget to stay updated on Case's impact investing work by signing up for our newsletter at www.caseatduke.org.